please turn to Psalm 131. Hear God's word for you. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And we ask that you would open our eyes, enlighten our minds, touch our hearts this morning. Lord, may we grow to know you. May we grow in our trust. May we grow in our ability to be like the weaned child, resting calmly and securely in the arms of its mother. Father, be at work this morning, we pray, for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Have you ever struggled in your life with being satisfied with what you have or how life is going? Now, I actually know that's not really much of a question because I know the answer is absolutely. We have all completely struggled with that. We've all been in that place where our hearts desire more, we think we deserve better than what we have, or we end up pursuing something that we shouldn't have pursued. And in many ways, it all falls under this very big umbrella that we would call discontent. Discontent of being dissatisfied, and, and that is a dangerous disease of the soul. You know, actually, our, our two dogs display discontent daily, probably multiple times a day. We have these Kongs, these toys that you can fill with, you know, treats and other things. But even if they don't have treats, they like to chew on them. But if one has one and the other has the other, it, it is, it, it's a war at that point in time um, because they just go at each other. It can be, get to be fairly animated in our family room at that point in time. You do not want to be anywhere near the floor. And uh, you know what happens, though, is it what, what gets frustrating is when they each get the toy that they were going after, they drop them and go back after the toy they originally had. And you know, as I watch it, it's crazy, but it's, I think it's a pretty accurate reflection of our hearts, of how fickle we are, how discontent we are with what the Lord has given us. Jeremiah Burroughs was a 17th century Puritan in England, and he wrote a wonderful little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he defined Christian contentment in this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, there's a lot in that definition, but doesn't it sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound wonderful to have that a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition? Just imagine that in this day and age. Imagine that in your own hearts and in your own lives. Imagine what a difference true contentment would make. 
Well, that's what our psalm addresses this morning is contentment and hope and waiting calmly and peacefully upon the Lord. Psalm 131, we just read it. It's a mere three verses, a scant nine lines, but it's deeply personal, and I believe it's a captivating psalm. It's one of the song of ascent. Psalm 130 was as well. It's part of this group from 120 to 134 that were sung by worshipers as they traveled up to Jerusalem, up to the mountain of God, and to, to, to go worship the Lord of heaven and earth. The pilgrims would sing these songs on the road. Now, if I were to categorize Psalm 131, it would be a psalm of confidence, and it would fit within that larger category of the psalms of orientation because things are going well. And when I thought about this, this this is a psalm I want to preach on, not just because of the subject matter, which I believe is vitally important and, and something I and all of us need to grow in, but also because I wanted to show how it actually follows from the psalm before. This is not some disorganized collection of 150 psalms, but it follows from Psalm 130 quite well. In that psalm, the author addressed the grace of God and forgiveness and knowing the fear of the Lord. And this psalm is about contentment in God, humble trust of our Lord and Savior. It's part of that journey in our growth in grace, learning more and more to, to trust and to rely upon the Lord. And I will admit, as I worked on this this week, this, it was actually a bit of a struggle uh, to go through this because, you know what, I find myself discontent too often. I find myself easily irritated. I find myself short, snapping at the kids or, or whatever, and I fight it, and I want to fight it, and I desperately need this message, and, and I need to, to see how those grand companions of the Lord that we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 130 of forgiveness, steadfast love, and plentiful redemption are vital, they're foundational to our ability to live at rest in this broken world and with experiences and desires that we have every day, every moment of the day that tend to fight against contentment. So this morning, my prayer is that we will all see the beauty of the life portrayed in the psalm, that we would start to catch a glimpse more and more of it, and that the Lord, by His Spirit, will start to work contentment more deeply into our lives. We're coming out of, well, maybe coming out, hopefully coming out of 18 months of a lot of discontent in our world. And so, we need this worked in our lives. It's it's extremely applicable. So, look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, the psalmist here, he draws out one idea in multiple expressions, and that one idea is pride. He draws out the idea of pride. David writes of the absence of it, which I think we could all say would be wonderful to have the absence of pride. And as we look at this idea of pride, we will do so within the categories that David gave us, our our hearts, our eyes, and the very occupation of our lives, what we do with our time, what we do with our hands and feet, what we do with with everything. And and, and then from that, we would see how possessing pride is an impediment, a massive impediment to a life of contentment. So the heart… The heart is the seat of who we are. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. 
So listen, if the heart is tapped into the wrong water source, everything's going to be poisoned from that. If you're tapped into the wrong source, it's going to lead to issues. And David denies that his heart is lifted up. He denies that his is prideful. He appeals to God and states that he he basically says, my disposition of my heart is not one of pride. And he's able to say that because he knows and believes that what he has is from the Lord. He's longing for more than what the… He's not actually longing for more than what the Lord has for him. Psalm 16 is actually one of my favorite psalms, and it's a psalm of David. And in it, he expresses, I think, contentment in multiple places. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's one who knows where his good rests. In verse 5 and 6, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He knows that, that what the Lord has given to him, it's pleasant. He has a beautiful inheritance no matter what it would be. And verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. You see, those are the words of one who rests in the Lord himself and, and what the Lord has provided. Those are words of someone whose heart is set more on the Lord than on themselves. Now, this was not always the place of David's heart. We know that. His heart was lifted up at times, and certainly times where he thought more highly of himself than he ought and believed he deserved whatever he wanted. We can just say one word, Bathsheba. And then you could throw in Uriah and other issues going on where he broke every commandment possible. But he could say that these words they serve as an expression of the direction and desire, the overall direction and desire of his life. Then, you know, perhaps he uttered these in the context of early on in his life when he was accused of, of seeking Saul's kingship and being an interloper. And you could read 1 Samuel 24 and 26 and see how David was content, where people around him were pushing him to go for the king, to go for the crown. And he's like, no, not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. He was content with where he was. Now, he did become king, but it does seem, if you look back at David, that his heart would likely have been content had he been a shepherd all his days. He would have been fine being with the sheep. You see, the person absent of pride does not think of himself more highly than he ought or flaunt his own achievements. Because they know that what they have achieved and what they have come to is by the grace of God. It's not by what they've done. And so, in their lives, the the love for God rather than love for self is what reigns. Matthew Henry wrote, I thought this was wonderful, he said, the love of God reigning in the heart, so reigning in the heart, will subdue all inordinate self-love. If you have the love of God reigning, it's going to push out that self-love that doesn't need to be there. So that's the heart. Then David moves to the arena of the eyes. My eyes are not raised too high. And here is pride manifesting itself as arrogance. You could turn with me to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, where Jesus told this parable to some who trusted themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see how he started that off. He told it, the the parable, to those who thought highly of themselves. They trusted themselves that they were righteous. And what happens is the natural consequence of that attitude that you look down on others. You compare yourself to others. That's the the natural result of self-justification, of a self-righteous attitude. When you base your worth off what you do, off your own record, what you believe about yourself, listen, you have to look down on other people. Because if other people are above you, you drop on that totem pole and things start going worse for you. And so you have to figure out ways to knock them down, whether it's what they wear, what they look like, what they do, how they speak, whatever it may be, you will do everything you can to knock other people down. Because that's how you gain your worth. And that's how you hold on to it. And you know what? When you meet that person who's better than you that you can't take down, it's deeply troublesome to your soul. And the result of that is that 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 becomes a recipe for frantic, discontent behavior in your heart and in your actions. And rather than that kind of attitude, what is called for, what is evidence uh, not of pride but of humility is what we read in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, in our psalm, David is declaring that his eyes were not inordinately raised that they did, uh, did not insatiably seek more. They were content with the pleasant places that the Lord had provided for him. See, he actually understood the words that his son would write years later. In Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, it's the lamp of the wicked. Now, again, this was not always true in David's life, okay? This was not always true of him. But he was actually, if you read in Chronicles and Samuel and other places, he was, he was characterized as a man after God's own heart. And you know what? Sometimes you can sit and think, you can go, wow, how? how after all he did? But rather than thinking that, I actually think it's encouragement to us because we all mess up a lot. And the question is, what's the direction? What's the disposition of your heart? And the direction of disposition of David's heart was when he did all those things, it might have taken him a while with the Bathsheba incident, but when he was confronted, what did he do? He repented. He humbled himself before the Lord, repented, and prayed. And that's encouragement to us. Because you know what? None of us are perfect. 
None of us. Well, then he stated his last point, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David submitted to the providence of God, to God's ordering of all things in his life. Now, this does not mean that we are not to aspire to great things, but that we actually aspire to those things for the right reasons. Okay, we don't pursue things for our glory, for our fame and comfort, but we do so for the glory of God, for the good of His church, for the good of His people. This is not a, a condemnation of ambition per se. We should be ambitious. You don't want to be like the sluggard who, you know, gets tired out rolling over on his bed. You, you do want ambition, but you want holy ambition. It's a condemnation of prideful, presumptuous ambition, the ambition that places you at the center rather than the Lord and His glory. See, where our hearts long rather to glorify God wherever we are, in whatever condition we've placed us in, He's put us in. That reminds me of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And that, that text is a call to pursue obedience in our sphere of life, to follow the revelation that the Lord has given us to live lives submitted to Him in humility and trust. Matthew Henry wrote, he said, to know God and our duty is learning sufficiently high for us. To know God and our duty is learning sufficiently high for us. It is our wisdom and will be our praise to keep within our sphere and not to intrude into things which we have not seen or meddle with that which does not belong to us. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. And certainly that applies to diving into speculatively, to speculative things about God that, that have not been revealed to us in His holy word. But I think it also applies more pointedly to us today as we think about things. Now, I know I don't speak the most favorable of social media. Um, and part of that is because it is, if you watch and you pay attention to social media or honestly any media, or the human heart, it's full of people who, who get outside of their lanes a lot. <laughs> like the phrase, stay in your lane, needs, needs to come back. So many people are on social media and they spout off as if they know everything. They have to comment on absolutely everything, wanting to and longing to be heard and to be seen as an expert. But guess what? We are not experts in every field not even close. And I believe that approaching life that way, where we have to know everything and we have to comment on everything, we have to have an opinion on absolutely everything, and where people want you to have that. Okay, I've talked to other pastors who have had people in their church say, Pastor, why don't you speak on this more and more? Then the pastor speaks on it, and they're like, Pastor, you don't have any right to talk about that. It's like, you can't win. Okay, so we have to learn to do this. It, it's not good for us because all this media consumption, it's honestly more than we were designed for. We can't handle a community that is six billion. Some of us have a hard time handling a community of six. And, and when, we, when we have to know everything and we constantly consume that, it's not good for us. And it will lead to utter discontent and anger and fear and worry and anxiety in our lives. 
Now, are we to learn and grow? Absolutely. Are there things we, we should try and learn about? Yes. But you don't have to know everything about everything because you won't. So understand that. Understand where you are, okay? We, we cannot meddle in so many other things because it's honestly, it's not good for your soul. It's not good for rest and peace. And I think some of it is an outflow of pride that you want to be seen as smarter and better. And pride, folks, it's a massive impediment to a life of contentment. And so David here teaches us that we're not the center of it all. We're to be content with what the Lord has for us, the gifts and talents He has given us, the place in our life, and that we are to strive to live godly lives all our days. So let's not get, up with, get caught up with the life of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Folks, so we're called to something else. We're called to something better than that frantic nature of a discontent life. Verse 2, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The first thing you should notice as we read this is the repetition. You might even notice that it's similar to the repetition in Psalm 130, more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. It's meant to draw our attention. It's a picture of contentment, uh, the peace and stillness of a weaned child. But there's also something else here that I believe draws our attention, and it's that quietness and calm does not just show up in our lives. It has to be intentional. We have to, to, to pursue it. It's the result of intentional effort. We have to take steps in order to calm and quiet our souls. The language that he uses here, it's, not, uh, it's hard to translate, it, but it's essentially an oath. It's surely, surely I have done this. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. And it stresses that there's determination and work to get to the point of calmness. Now, unfortunately, we are people in our natures who want formulas, Okay? How many 12-step programs are there? Or do these three things and you'll have a six-pack of abs or whatever it might be. You'll lose your 50 pounds or you'll lose your 10 pounds or you'll, you'll, you'll have success in life. We like formulas. David doesn't give us a formula. He says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. And you know what? That's, that's good. Because even if he gave, you know, even if there was a formula, we all are affected differently by different things in life and they don't always work the same way. So what we have to do is we have to approach this idea of calming and quiet the soul in principle. We have to approach it in principle because there are things that I believe that we can do that will help cultivate contentment, things that if they're absent, you're not going to be content. Paul had to learn to be content. He said, I have learned the secret of contentment. It does not come naturally. So I would say that a starting point is something that we looked at a couple weeks ago with Psalm 130, and that's the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is foundational. You know, this idea, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. As we come to know the fear of the Lord and we understand our own sinfulness, our need of forgiveness, that's the groundwork for contentment. Without that, I don't think we're going to be able to be truly content. 
And that experience of forgiveness will engender in us proper fear and reverence of the Lord. And then as we have that proper fear and reverence, we seek to grow in the knowledge of this God that forgives sin. We see the blessing of His presence of steadfast love and plentiful redemption that are with Him. Two things that can never be found in this world. Not even in the, in the greatest of marriages, in the greatest of relationships on this earth, is there purely steadfast love. And there's definitely not redemption. <laughs> we can mirror it, but we, we can't offer real redemption. It's only found in the Lord. And so then once we know the Lord and we see His beauty and His goodness, that beauty and goodness revealed in Christ because Christ is the final revelation, we then labor in our lives to know Him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Folks, we need to rehearse the beauty of the gospel daily, the, the beauty of the second person of the Trinity condescending to take on flesh, to live the life that we can't, to die the death we deserve, to conquer that death, to conquer sin, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven where He sits as our advocate interceding for us. And as you keep that at the forefront of your heart and mind, I think what we'll start to develop is the mindset that Paul had in Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He, he doesn't want to boast in anything but the cross. He'll boast in his weakness because by his weakness, the power of Christ is displayed. And as that grows and folks as it's growing and just as we're part of life in this world, listen, trouble is going to be part of that life. There will be trials and difficulties and irritations and disappointments. And here's what I think we need to do. Acknowledge them. Acknowledge them. We cannot live in denial of pain and disappointments We've seen that in the Psalms of Lament as we've gone through them. That is, it's important for us to come before the Lord in everything, to, to take those disappointments, those irritations, everything to the Lord. And so as you acknowledge the brokenness, as you acknowledge the disappointment and the pain, pray. Psalm 62, 8, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your hearts before Him because He's our refuge. And we know, right? Blessed are all who take refuge in the King who reigns. He's trustworthy. And as you take it to God, be people, and as you're growing, you search the Scriptures for promises and principles to worry, to anxiety and fear and disappointment. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Scripture, scripture doesn't dodge pain. It's, it's one of the many beauties of God's Word is it doesn't dodge the pain of life. It doesn't dodge the heartache of the broken world. It speaks directly to it. So you see these things. You, you acknowledge the pain. You're, you, you pray and be thankful. Listen, nothing, nothing destroys the ability to be content more than murmuring, more than an ungrateful, 
presumptuous attitude in life. Just take some time, go home, and read the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And they could be carrying a banner that says, oh, we're discontent. You know, they get out and what do they say? Can we just go back? Because they had like leeks and other things there that we could eat. Now, we weren't free. We were beaten all the time. But can we just utter discontent? And then read Hebrews 3 and 4. And you see this charge to, to not let an, an evil, unbelieving heart into your life. An evil, unbelieving heart, it's, it's sin. And it's difficult. There's that call to strive to enter the rest of God. But as I said to you, and as this text shows us, this is a process. Uh, probably every mother in here could say is weaning a child does not happen like that. There are times when the child is discontent in her arms <laughs> as that weaning process begins. And so that, that, that image, that language tells us this is not a quick and painless process. Our hearts are naturally bent towards the things of this world. We long for them. We take delight in them. We, we pursue them. We think we cannot live without them. Yet by the work of the grace of God, we are actually conformed more and more to the image of Christ, and we're weaned from those things. And we can all probably remember times where there was that, that certain something we wanted so bad, just like my dogs, and you fought for it and fought for it, and you got it, and maybe it lasted, the, sh the shininess of it lasted about a week, and then you forgot where you put it. It didn't satisfy, and that discontent heart was just fed more and more. But as we're conform more to the image of Christ and we're weaned from those things, Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, providence puts wormwood upon the breast, and that helps to wean us. There's wormwood. There's, there's a, a dissatisfaction with the things of this world. We begin to see the lack of fulfillment in those things, that they're not where true life and hope is actually found. They're not where worth is found. And Charles Spurgeon addressed the nature of our growth. He said, to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forgo the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Then we behave manfully and every childish complaint is hushed. So what's that saying is we, we begin to be satisfied in God and not just in the things He gives us. That's when we grow in grace, is being more and more satisfied in God than in the blessings that God has given us. Again, it is not easy to quiet our souls. I would say it's easier to tame a wild horse or learn a new language after 40. We are so set in our ways and we are so often insolent and cranky and selfish and uneasy, and it is nothing but the grace of God that can bring quiet into the midst of disappointments and irritations and frustrations and afflictions. So what it calls us to is humility. It's the humble that the Lord looks to. Look at Isaiah 66, the first few verses. It's the humble that are going to experience this. The proud will continue to fight for what they want, what they believe is best. They, they know what's right. The proud's favorite word is, but I'm going to just go after it anyways. That's their favorite phrase. 
but the humble will lie in the arms of their loving Lord because they have freedom to forget themselves and they rest and they lay back and they lie down and sleep in the loving arms of their God. And as you calm and quiet yourself in the arms of your father, who I love the fact that he's portrayed here with the tenderness of a mother, the care of a mother for her child, you begin to experience that rest and contentment. And with that, you realize the good that it is, and you're going to call others to this hope. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And one last thing I want to point out here is that contentment in the midst of pain and frustration and affliction and disappointment, it's not indifference. Okay, it's not indifference. It's not, oh, I'm going to ignore the things that cause me pain. That doesn't bring about contentment. That brings about a volcano later. It's actually a humble trust in the Lord in the midst of them. Again, Burroughs' definition, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Folks, Jesus was content with the Father. He was not indifferent to the reality of what he was experiencing and about to experience as his life headed toward the pain of the cross. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Didn't he acknowledge that pain? He lifted it up to the Father. He poured out his heart, but he did so with full and complete trust that what the Father willed was perfect. He is actually the only one who can truly sing Psalm 131 without it being merely the direction of their life, because Psalm 131 is the complete embodiment of Christ's life. So, folks, this text is a call to us. It's a call to humility, to trust, humility that is essential in order to learn contentment. It's a call to to be weaned from the things of this world, to, to understand that when the things of this world, when there's a bitter taste with them, that is the Lord's providence saying, it's not going to do it. It's me. Seek the thing that is actually good and rest in my arms. So, are you restless? Are you unsatisfied and discontent? Then examine your heart, your eyes, your ambition, and pray that the Lord would work in you humility, that you would learn from the disappointments and pray that you would see more and more the sheer beauty of our God, His care, His concern, His compassion, and that you would be able to experience the sweetness of hope, and rest and trust lying in the arms of your Savior like a weaned child in the arms of its mother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, it's a beautiful word. It's hard. We know in our hearts that this is hard, that we have a difficult time with contentment, We have a world that screams at us daily, you need this in order to be happy. And they know nothing of what can truly make someone happy. And so, Lord, draw us more to you. Humble our hearts. Give us peace and rest in the arms of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.